Well, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And for the sake of uh, context, let's uh, start in verse number 1 and read down to verse number 12. Uh, but our, our primary focus this morning is going to be on verses 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing in all, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. As I said, our focus is on verses 9 and 10. And this, uh, this call to uh, abound and increase in love for one another. And this is not a difficult passage to understand. Uh, in fact, if you've been a Christian for any number, any length of time, uh, you can pretty much give an explanation of this passage. And so we're going to focus more on the application uh, side this morning. We'll try to limit our, our, our explanation. Um, we'll focus on the application of these two verses, verses 9 and 10. But let's pray. And then we'll get into our study this morning. Father, we're grateful to be gathered as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning uh, and recognizing our need for you, whether it is in joy or pain, uh, whether we are facing difficulties in life or whether we are facing the, the highs and, and blessed experiences of life, we, uh, we need to be reminded of the fact that we, we need you. And in this time now where we come and, and study your, your word, uh, we continue to be in need of you. We need your spirit to, to impress upon our hearts the significance of what we are about to study uh, because this is, these are not just man's ideas, uh, but they come from you, Lord. And uh, we want to regard it as your word and uh, heed it and obey it as, uh, as coming from, from the Lord of, of all creation. So help us in this time, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So in coming to chapter 4, um, one of the things I've mentioned the last several weeks is that we have arrived at what I've t described as the meat of, of the letter. 
the first three chapters, so the Apostle Paul sort of giving uh, warm uh, and kind regards to the Thessalonian believers and talking about the warm nature of their relationship and how they love him and he loves them and uh, he's commended them uh, numerous times. But then he comes to chapter 4 and he begins to give instructions as to how these believers are to, to live. And he's given instructions in, in three particular areas. Uh, the first, in verses 3 through 8, is the, the need for sexual purity, which we, d- we discussed the last two weeks. Then this morning, as we, we look at this, this, the need to abound in their love for one another, verses 9 and 10. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll come and look at the, the need to quietly work with a good testimony before outsiders. And so the Apostle Paul here is, is giving these instructions and, and in some senses is calling them back to the very basics of Christianity. Now, sometimes it's, it's good for us uh, to be reminded of the, the basics because some of the problems in life are that we have missed sort of the, the, fundamental, uh, the fundamentals of, uh, of life. So, so uh, just, just recently, I was uh, lamenting to... To, I don't see Fred Heideman here, but I thought I saw him earlier. We, I was lamenting to Fred Heideman about how my drives playing golf were all going to the right. And uh, so it was just on the phone. I was talking to him. And he said, well, keep that elbow in. Keep that right elbow in, and, and, and you'll be fine. And so I had to go back to the fundamentals, and I'd put that elbow in, and I'm happy to report I'm hard, hit, starting to hit the ball a lot straighter, all right? So thanks to Fred, just called me back to, to the basics. Now, uh, what we're going to unpack here in, in this idea of, of love is, is really not new for us. Uh, and it really is foundational and basic to the Christian life. But, but like so many other aspects of life, we need to be brought back to the, the basics of Christianity and, and what, our, what God has called us to do and how he has called us to live. Now, as we work through this particular passage together, uh, allow me to do something of a brief overview and, and just sort of unpack uh, how he's, what his argument is or the flow of the discussion here in verses 9 and 10, and then, uh, then we'll sort of look, try to look at this in an organized way this morning. So he begins this statement in, in verses 9 and 10. He begins with a statement of, of very high praise. Right? Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. That's a, a, a very high compliment. We're going to consider that in a minute. But then he follows it up with two reasons as to why he has no re- they have no reason for anyone to write to them. First, because they had been taught by God to love one another. And secondly, this is what they were already doing for all of the brothers in Macedonia. So then Paul concludes the comments in verse 10 with this, this, this exhortation to then continue to to love and to do so more and more. Okay, so that's sort of how the the passage breaks down. And as we look at it, let's look at it in three sections. We'll look at the compliment, the confirmation, and the call. All right, just to give us some organization to our passage this morning. So let's begin with the compliment the Apostle Paul gives these believers. Okay, this, as I said, is a a very high compliment in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, it's necessary that we're, we're careful in our clarification on, on this point when we talk about love. Now, you'll remember back to the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3 finished with a prayer by the Apostle Paul, and, and chapter 3, verses 
11 through 13 served as something of an introduction to what was to come in chapter 4. So in the prayer in chapter 3, he says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And then he says this, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Okay? He's starting to set the table for the instructions he's about to give. And he goes on to say, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. And as we got into chapter 4, he, he wrote to them about how they were to abstain from sexual immorality and control themselves and live in, in holiness. And then he finishes off this prayer in verse 13 uh, to say that this is before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And in chapter 4, verses 13, he's going to begin to talk about the return of the Lord and the coming of, uh, the coming of Christ. And so the things he mentions here in this prayer sort of set the table for what is to come in, in chapter 4. Now, the reason I remind you of this is because in, in, at the end of chapter 3 here, we discussed uh, in, in, in significant detail the, to, to clarify what it means when the Bible calls us to have love for one another. And I attempted to, to, to make this point clear, to, to tell us that, that love, according to a biblical understanding of love, not a, not a secular understanding of love, but love is about devotion not about emotion. Okay, so love as it's pictured and described in the Bible is, is really a commitment to do what is best for the other person. Okay, and I know I belabored this point, but it's important to distinguish between biblical love and sort of a worldly or secular view of, of love because a lot of the today's understanding of love is wrapped up in ideas of having an affinity for someone. Or it's, it's wrapped up in this idea of emotions or warm fuzzies or the kinds of things that you see on Hallmark movies around Christmas time if you watch those kinds of things. I've been, I've been held captive a few times physically, not, not, not by the actual quality of the movie. Okay. But when the, Bible, when the Bible talks about love, there is a stark difference between, between that and, and what you see in, in more... Uh, romantic-based kind of movies, right? So the Bible describes love in, in terms like this, patient, kind, not insisting on its own way, not irritable or resentful. Okay, when the, when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about this commitment to the, to the well-being of, of, of someone else. And if we don't have a biblical understanding of love, then there will be certain uh, concepts that we, we, we can't fully grasp that the scriptures call us to. So, for example, the Bible says we are to love our enemies. But if our idea of love is wrapped up in this idea of, of affinity or emotion, we'll have a disconnect for how it is we're to, to love our enemies. But if love is about our commitment to the betterment of another person, then you can see how it's possible, even if we don't feel love, to still act in love toward those who would be considered our enemies. Or conversely, if a, a single couple might say that they love each other, but if they're not pursuing, or if they're not pushing each other to Christ, or, or maybe their relationship is, is marked by, by, by lust, then they're not actually loving someone, each other in a biblical way. Rather, it's a, it's a self-serving type of love. Okay, so we want to be, always be careful when we talk about love to think about it in biblical terms so that we don't have a distorted understanding and fail to understand what Christ has called us to. Okay, so this is, this is what love is. It's, it's, it's devotion or a commitment 
to the be- to the to to the be- for the best of the other the other person. Now, in this passage, we have this term used, brotherly love. Okay, Paul says now concerning brotherly love. Now, in classical Greek, this term is, is probably you know it as as Philadelphia. But in classical Greek, this word was used to describe the relationship between family members, okay, between brothers and sisters and, and, and family. But in the New Testament, almost exclusively, does this term refer to brothers and sisters in Christ, right? It takes a family term, and it, and it applies it to those who have union with one another based on their relationship with Christ. And it speaks of, 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 of our commitment to one another. Okay, it speaks to our responsibility to push one another toward Christ. It's our responsibility, as the New Testament talks about, to, to meet one another's needs. It's our duty to care. As Romans 12 talks about, it's our duty to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And these are all aspects of what it means to have this, this family love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we talk about love for one another... This is what the Bible has in mind. It is a familial love. So, notice then, when Paul says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, as I said, this is an extremely high compliment. In other words, they were the model church when it came to love. There was no reason for Paul to even to write them a letter concerning love because of how well they did in their love. All right, just imagine you walk into a parent-teacher conference and you're, as a a parent, right, and so your your teacher says, you know, your son or, or your daughter, it's like basically you guys don't even need to be here because your son, little Johnny, is, is the model student. Right? He does all of his homework on time. He's kind to the other students. He helps them, never misbehaves, never backtalks, never talks in class. Right? Now, you wouldn't believe this, but this is the, the kind of reports that my parents got. In No, I'm not kidding, but it wasn't about me. It was about my sister. All right? so, so, you know, those kinds of comments, I guess, they can happen. Or imagine you sit down for an annual work review and your boss says, you know, really, you don't even need to be here because, quite frankly, you're the model employee. You come early, you stay late, you always get the job done, your attitude's great, okay? You're an outstanding asset to this company, okay? That's the kind of comments that Paul is saying. I, I don't even need to write anything to you because you guys are the model. The thing I find interesting, though, is, like, if you, if you receive that kind of review for your, for your job, it's like, well, I've completed a task, and, and you can get a good review. But here, Paul's, Paul's commending them, not so much for completing a task, but, but really for the unfolding of their character. Because you guys, you guys really love each other, and love spills from you, right? So, so we would all acknowledge that love, and we'll talk about this in a minute, love is extremely difficult. But for them to be so loving... That, that, that Paul could say, I don't even need to write these things to you or even encourage you in this regard or give you any instruction. This is an amazing, an amazing compliment. Now, I read this phrase, and I think, what would it take for someone to say this 
about our church family. That we don't even need to preach about this particular passage. Like, okay, love's the next verse in the passage, and so you guys are doing an outstanding job at this. We're just going to go ahead and skip it and move on to the next study. Like, that would, that would be, that would be, I think all of our goals, that our congregation would be marked by this kind of sincere care and genuine love for one another. Right? We, we want to, we want to, we want to be part of that kind of, of congregation. Like when, when one person hurts, we all hurt. Or when there's a conflict, we, we run to one another to, to make peace with one another. Or we're a congregation that's just careful with our words, always looking to, to build one another up. Or when there's a physical or emotional need, the church takes it on themselves to, to, to care for care for someone else, where we're kind and gracious and patient and assuming the best. This is what we want to be as a church family. Now, you might be sitting here, well, I could think of a few people, uh, you know, that could probably, you know, need to hear this message, okay? But that's not the loving response, okay? The loving response is if we're going to be this kind of church family, that it starts with actually looking inward and asking ourselves, okay, well, where do I fall short in terms of being that kind of member of this congregation? In what areas specifically in my own life do I need to to change or improve in order to start to demonstrate love as the scriptures have called me to do? What needs to change in, in my own heart so that I can contribute to a culture of love among this church family? And we're going to talk about this in, in a couple minutes as to what this looks like, but let's just establish for now that, that this is the goal. Right? This is the goal to get to the point where we can come to the next passage on love and skip it because we're all doing so well in this area. Okay, so let's hold this out there first as this is the goal. Okay? So Paul begins, he gives them this compliment, but then he goes on here and he gives them, really, we see kind of two confirming evidences of, of, of this compliment, the fact that they don't need to be instructed on love. Okay, so notice first in verse 9, he says, you don't need these instructions, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now remember that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when they planted this church, they were not able to stay as long as they would have liked to. Persecution forces them out prematurely, so they're not able to establish and build up these believers in the ways that they, would, they, had, they had wished. And so we would expect that the Thessalonians had some shortcomings or some, some deficiencies when it came to their sanctification and their understandings of God and, and what he was requiring of them. And so when Paul writes back, though, we see that, that in this area of love, there was no deficiency because even though their, their disciples had left early, the missionaries had left early, they had been taught by God himself how to love one another. This, this phrase, taught by God, it, it doesn't mean that God came and visited them and held like an eight-week elective on the topic of love. No, this is the idea that, that as they understood the gospel and God's love through Christ in the gospel, that they were overwhelmed by this display of, of, of God's love in Christ, that it served and enabled them and motivated them to love one another. Okay, so, so really there's, there's like three aspects here involved in, in, in how God's, 
God's love taught them or how God's love impacts our love, right? So first of all, God's love enables our love. And this is what was happening with the Thessalonians. Like they, they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they were then enabled because of the, their, their spiritual hearts were, were awakened and they were able to, to enable to, to love others, right? So this is what Romans 5, 5 talks about when it says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us so that then we can, we can love also. Or, or in our scripture reading, we read 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Right? So as, as, our, as our spiritually dark hearts are opened, we are then enabled to love by God's love being shed abroad in our hearts. But it also, God's love serves as a motivation. Right? So... 1 John 4, 11, that we also read in our scripture reading, says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, so our motivation is, is God's love. So if God loved us, which he did, then we, therefore, should be motivated to love others as well. Right? This is especially practical. So, so when we have difficulty loving someone, we come back in our minds to the love that God has given to us as a motivation for loving others. Like, if God can love me in my sin, then I can love someone else who has sinned and wronged me also. Okay, so, so God's love serves as a motivation. But the third way in which we're taught by God's love is that God's love is an example for us to follow. Okay, so how are we to love? We're to love like God loved through Christ. So Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says to the Ephesians, Therefore, be imitators of God. Okay, follow this example, he says. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, how do we do that? He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, so God's love in Christ is the example that we're to follow in loving one another. Well, how did he love? He loved selflessly. And we're to love one another selflessly, selflessly as well, right? So Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives. And then he holds up Christ as the example. As Christ loved the church. So when we think about loving one another, and I think it's, we have this tendency to maybe put limits on how far our love will go. Well, I'll love people to a certain point, but then there's a spot where I just kind of cut off and there's, there's no love beyond this point. But our example is the love of Christ, who, who gave of himself while we were in our sins and, and displayed this, this love to us. And so that is our example, our motivation, and we have been enabled by that love. So this is what it means to be taught by God to love. Now, if we refuse to love one another, really one of two things might be true of us. Number one, that we have never experienced the love of God ourselves. So we, we maybe are not a believer and are limited in the ability we have to love because God has not changed our heart. So if we don't love, it might be because we're not actually believers. But, but secondly, perhaps we've reached a place in our spiritual walk where we have lost a sense of awe for God's love for us. 
And so it's helpful for us to come back and remind ourselves what it, what is, what it means to be taught by God that he was the, the perfect example and demonstration of love for us so that we can stand in awe of God's love and be motivated to love one another. When we experience God's love through Christ in the gospel, the result is that we love one another. Now, this is the first reason why Paul says you had no reason for anyone to write to you. But then he goes on in verse 10 and he gives the second reason. He says that this is already what you, what you are already doing to all the brothers in Macedonia. Now, in this particular passage, we're not told how they were loving the brothers in Macedonia. In fact, there were only three churches that we're aware of in Macedonia. There was Philippi, there was uh, Berea, there was Thessalonica. Those are the only ones we know of at the moment. So in some way, the Thessalonians, their love was demonstrated to, to, the, to these other brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, we don't know exactly how, but we do see that it was demonstrated. Paul says that, that their love was, was really put on display. What's interesting here, and I think is, is helpful for us to understand, is that love is that love actually turns into service, or that genuine love has action, or that genuine love serves. Right? It wasn't mere words of love, but he says, for indeed, this is what you are doing to all the brothers in Macedonia. So their love had action. It wasn't just words and expressions of love. It had action behind it. So, for example, I can tell my wife that I love her, but if I never serve her, if I never help, if I never uh, commit acts of, of service and action, then my love, my expression of love actually contradicts, or my my actions contradict my expression of love. Okay, so love, when we talk about loving one another, it has to turn into acts of service and care for one another. Okay, so this is how the passage breaks down. He gives them this compliment. You have no need for anyone to write you. It's confirmed in the fact that they've been taught by God, and then secondly, that this is what they're already doing for all the brothers in Macedonia. And he finishes then with a call, right? A call to continue. Right? Notice the end of, of verse number 10. He says, okay, you don't need anyone to write to you. Here's why. But, he says, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You're doing a good job, but never stop being careful to love one another. He says, we urge you here. This is a strong encouragement. And he, and he says this because Paul is aware of the danger of, of ceasing to love. Right? In our pursuit of loving one another and being loving and gracious to one another, this is never something that we can just sort of just stop and say, well, I've arrived. I don't have to, to do anymore. Okay? There's always the need to continue. Okay? I remember back in my, in my college days, uh, I went to a school in northern Wisconsin. And so we would get, like at night, uh, you know, a, a nice small ice storm. And all the sidewalks would, would be covered with ice. And then you'd get, like, just a, a thin layer of snow to just cover the ice. And so we would we'd be walking. You had to walk, you know, all the sidewalks and stuff to get to the classes. And so you, you, you had to do what we called was the, the school they went to was called Northland. And what they called it was the Northland Shuffle. All right? And that was you didn't, you didn't lift your feet 
very high. You just kind of shuffled along, being very careful because if you like put too much weight on one step, you would easily hit the ground. And so I remember some of my favorite memories were being on the third floor of the, uh, one of the education buildings, looking out and watching people not know that this spot of ice was there and then just sort of approach it and, and wipe out. I mean, I would have been an encouragement to him had I been down there, but I wasn't down there anyway, so I could laugh at him from the window, you know. So, um, but it's this idea of, of, of when, when we're not careful to love, we can easily slip. Okay, we can easily miss out. Like this is Paul's instructions in Ephesians is, you don't let the sun go down on your wrath because if you do, you're going to give a foothold to the devil. So we always have to be careful to love. We, we never arrive. We always be careful to love so because the devil can creep in so easily in these regards. So that's why Paul says, listen, you've got to continue to do this. Do this more and more. Give careful attention to loving one another. So this is what we're called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let's, let's start to unpack this a little more practically in, in our lives uh, here today. So let's acknowledge that love is, is really tough. Okay? It, it's, it's, it's really tough. I, mean, I, I think if we really start to think about all the people that we know that are really tough to love, we can be like, yep, I, you're absolutely right on that one. Okay? I mean, we, we love the vision of a, of a loving community and, and caring for one another and, and being concerned for one another. But somehow there is this gap between the vision of love and reality. Like when we start to see the amount of work that is necessary to get from, from, from the vision to the reality, uh, it can be an extremely disappointing thing. Right, so I would love to weigh 160 pounds, but if that means I have to eat kale or granola, it's like, it's just not worth the effort, right? So, so in the local church, there are a lot of challenges to, to genuine love. Like if everyone was, was like you or, or like me, it'd be much easier for us to live in love. If people thought like we did or they had similar backgrounds or similar age or similar political or theological convictions. You know, maybe they, if they like the same kind of music I like, love would be a lot easier. But we're different. And the greater the difference, the more difficult it is to love one another. It's interesting to note that the, the biblical picture of love is one of diversity among God's people. Now, I know some of you have diversity training at work, so you know all about diversity, but that's not what we're talking about here, okay? Think about how many passages in the New Testament address the unity that is to exist between Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women, rich and poor, and in, in all these groups, there was to be love for one another, and there was to be this, this, this picture or model of, of diversity. Their, their, their cultural backgrounds were to come second because their union in Christ was to come first. 
Now, when we talk about diversity in our day and what it means to have a diverse church family, I think most people think about it in terms of racial diversity. But this is somewhat of a limited way to talk about diversity. Okay? There are going to be parts of the world and, and sections of, of our country where racial diversity is just not even a reality. Right? The church in China is not really racially diverse, nor is the church in Africa going to be racially diverse. But if we just think about diversity in terms of, rela- of, of racially, we're going to be, be limited in that sense. So when we talk about diversity among God's people, here's what we're talking about. It's this idea that loving relationships exist in places where relationships shouldn't exist. Okay, let me say that again. Okay, when we talk about diversity among God's people, it's that loving relationships exist in places or among people where relationships shouldn't originally or or naturally exist. Okay, if we think about it in this way, then we understand there are lots of ways where diversity uh, exists in our congregation or or opportunities for for diversity, right? So, So one of them is age. We, we live in a day where to be called a boomer is a derogatory term meant to label someone as old and out of touch. Right? So it's intended to say that the, the way you think or respond is from another era and is no longer socially appropriate. And to call someone a boomer is to shut down conversation. Uh, but I, I love what I read recently. It said, the, it's this quote said, the only difference between you and the old out-of-touch person is time. Give it a few years, and you will be the old out-of-touch person. And I feel like I'm starting to transition into that reality, all right? So, so we live in a culture, though, that values youth and that cherishes the new. That there's a sense of chronological snobbery and that the way we do things now is better than the way we've ever done things in the past. But in the church, there are to be genuinely loving relationships between boomers and millennials. That there is to, there is to be this idea that we set age aside or age becomes secondary and our union in Christ is to be central. And so diversity means that, that there's relationships where there wouldn't naturally be relationships across generational lines. Another, another place where there is potential for diversity and, and differences in, in economic standing. Right? The church has always been made up of people from differing economic situations. Remember James 2, James rebukes them for showing favoritism to the, to, the, to the rich person and discriminating against the poor person. Like this was always going to be an issue in, in, the, in the church and they needed to be careful of it. And the temptation for us is always to group together with people that, that are like us and, and sort of stay away from people who are, are not like us. Okay, another area where there's potential for diversity is in this realm of politics. Okay, there are some people who are convinced that Donald Trump should be carved on the face of Mount Rushmore. Right? And if we have to deface all the other presidents up there, in order to put Trump up there, then it's, that it's necessary that we do so. And then there are others who think that he's an immoral, divisive person and no one should have ever voted for him. Okay? 
this and many other political issues stand as a threat to the unity and diversity of, of the church. And that's not to say that all political issues are equal and we should just overlook them, but many things that, that, that come between us stand as a possibility for disunity. There's also the idea or the diversity of, of social ability within the church. Okay? There will always be in churches those who are more socially gifted, and there will always be those who are more socially awkward. Right? You're thinking about them right now, right? Okay? I'm thinking of Tom Rowe all right, as the socially, the socially awkward, a good, a good definition of that, in case you're, in case you're wondering. Okay? But in the, in the church, the body of Christ, there's to be a unity across sort of the, the social skills and, and abilities of, of others. That people who are sort of in the cool crowd and people who are in the uncool crowd unite together because they, they genuinely love one another. And then there's all kinds of cultural backgrounds. Some people like NASCAR, and some people shop at Somerset. There's not a lot of similarities between those two people, okay? Some people grew up in a traditional church, and some people grew up in a more casual church. But the body of Christ is where those, those differences are set aside for unity, unity with one another. Now, I mention these things just to show us that the, 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 new, the, the, the opportunities for diversity are, are numerous, okay? And the biblical picture is where, is, is where genuine love exists in places where relationships wouldn't ordinarily exist. But here's my concern. People love the idea of being part of a diverse church. But the question is, are we really willing to love someone who's different than we are? Okay, we love the idea of diversity, but are we willing to set our own preferences aside and genuinely, genuinely love one another? Now, I've talked about some of these, these things here in, in smaller settings, but, but I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that this is a very helpful concept for us and something we need to think about. And you'll see them in your, in your small group notes there. These, this idea of, uh, and it's from this book called The Compelling Community, that there are really two types of community Within a, within a local church. There's gospel plus community, and there is gospel revealing community. Now, gospel plus community is this idea that we're here and, and we're together for the gospel and we profess love in Christ. But what really unites us is something in addition to that, in, in a plus category of that. So what really unites us is like a similar stage of life. Like you have young kids and I have young kids, and so we really relate, you know, and connect on that level. Or you, you and I have similar hobbies, and so we really unite together on, on, on similar hobbies. Or we're in, we're in you know, similar, similar political interests or political persuasions or things like that. And so it's not the gospel that brings us together, but it's something in addition to the gospel that brings us together. Now, it's not wrong for us to have hobbies and, and shared interests and things like that, but what we're going to see here in a minute is if our relationships stay only in that plus category, then we're not actually having gospel-centered relationships. They don't, they don't reveal the, the power of the gospel. Okay, We want to move on and, and move, we want to move beyond uh, the, the plus category. 
The second type of community is this idea of gospel-revealing community. And this is where we have relationships with people where, where we ordinarily wouldn't have relationships with people, but because of the gospel of Christ, it now opens up a door for genuine love between us, and while we have nothing else in common, we share a union with Christ. And that actually reveals, to a lost world, reveals the power of the gospel to bring us together. So I use this illustration this way. When, when we lost our, our sister Shirley Crump, and the college and career packed up and on a Wednesday night and went to the, to the viewing uh, for, for Shirley, you know, just think about how that would look for, uh, for an unbelieving person, right? So, the, so the, a lady in her 80s passes away and a group of 20-somethings come to show their support for Bob and in, in that setting. It's like, well, how do you know Bob and Shirley? Shirley must be family. And it's like, no, we're, we, we go to the same church together and we just wanted to come and show our, our love and concern. And, and an unbelieving world says back and says, wow, that, that doesn't happen, okay? Or it's extremely rare that that happens. But what it does is it reveals the power of the gospel in our lives to bring us together in genuine community. And so what we want in our relationships with one another is we want, a certain, we want a certain depth and we want a certain breadth to our relationship. So like, for example, if, if we do have a relationship and, it's, and it's initially it's, 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 it's instigated by a common interest or it's a gospel plus relationship, we don't want to stay in that category. But rather we want to see that relationship move beyond those things to a deeper level where the center of that relationship is Christ. Like one of the questions to ask ourselves is, if the gospel weren't true, would this relationship still survive? And the reality is that there are many relationships that we have that would still survive because the common interests are so similar that we'd be able to continue those even if the gospel wasn't true. But we want to ask ourselves is, 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 is Christ at the center of this relationship and is it being driven deeper because of our common love for Christ? So we want relationships that are both deep, and we want relationships that are both wide. In other words, you look across this room, and we want to be in a position where we can relate to anyone because of our, of our union with Christ. That, that when we have different age groups, and we have different backgrounds, and we have different interests, we recognize that Christ has called us to love one another genuinely and to put the interest of others ahead of our own, and that we have these relationships that, that transcend cultures, and we have diversity among our own assembly. Now, I think one of the greatest challenges to unity among God's people in more recent days has been in the various responses to COVID. Like, like li- lines in the sand were drawn you either stand on the side of science or you stand on the side of conspiracy, all right? And there's, there's nothing in between, okay? And what happened in these situations is that some relationships were strained and some relationships were genuinely damaged. But what it did, and I think this is, this is where I want to drive it home here, what it did is it revealed how gospel plus our relationships were. 
because we got to the other side of COVID and realized the only thing we have in common with this person is Christ, which sounds like a good thing, but then we get to the end of it, and it's like the only thing we have in common with Christ, and we're wondering, is that strong enough? Like, is our common bond in Christ really enough to, to help us survive the, the, the battles of COVID? Like, yeah, the Apostle Paul had Jew-Gentile issues, and, you know, in the 1800s there were issues of slavery, but that's nothing compared to the battles we face over COVID, right? Say, I say that sarcastically, okay? Um, these are not new these are not new ideas where the church has to face things that will test the genuineness of their love for one another. So this is where we want to really be on guard to make sure that the ways we respond are, are careful and that they're driven by love. Right, so, so you're faced with this challenge. You get to the end of the relationship and it's like, well, all we have left is, is Christ. And is that going to be enough? Well, then we have to basically, we have three options. We can huddle together with people who are like us and surround ourselves with, with people who are, you know, share similar positions that we do and, and then avoid, avoid the rest of them, okay? Or we can flee to a different group all, of people altogether and find a different group of people who are like us and, and, and we'll, we'll share our, our similar opinions and then never be stretched in our love. Or we can commit to doing the hard work of loving one another and let, let the scriptures be the scriptures and be true and, and build genuine love with one another. Right? Those are the options. Huddle up with people who are like you or go somewhere else and find people who are like you or we go about the hard work of genuine love for one another. Let me submit to you, in those three options... Only one of them reveals the power of the gospel. Only one of them is a gospel-revealing type of relationship. When we do the hard work to love one another as Christ has loved us. So what do you do when, when you face this potential for diversity or disunity within your local congregation? What do you do in these situations where the relationships are, are challenged? Well, I think we come back to the basics, right? Just come back to the basics of, of what Christ has called us to do, right? As believers, we can say we've been taught by God to love one another. And we remember our duty to love, and so we give it everything we've got to love one another and genuinely care and do our work to excel still more in love. The song we're going to sing here in a minute goes like this, the second verse. Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. This is what we've been called to. We've been, we've been taught by God. Now let's excel still more. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we're grateful for the time we have to consider these passages and the truths found within them. You know how difficult it is to love. 
you gave the greatest gift of sacrifice of love that has ever been given and you know the content of our of our hearts and the and thoughts of our hearts and how much we can struggle to genuinely love one another but the difficulty of something does not excuse us from our responsibility you've called us to commit you've called us to to give ourselves to one another not just a segment of the one another but you've called us to give ourselves to our entire church family to love and to be unified because you have enabled us and taught us and equipped us to do so. So Lord, let us love like you have loved. Let us be gracious like you have been gracious. Let us be forgiving like you have been forgiving. And may you use these comments to produce a culture of genuine love here. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.